0: Well, thank you very much. We're delighted to be here. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. Carol, a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And, Carol, we've got a special guest coming up in just a couple of moments, Dr. Lisa Easum, executive director of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving. Uh, Rosalind Carter, it's just amazing how early on she got involved in talking about caregiving.
1: Well, it really is because most people don't realize that she was one of the very first people in the country to even bring up caregiving as an issue i mean today people don't identify themselves as caregivers uh they were completely invisible uh this this thought of having an institute and studying it and dedicating time and energy it was a little small blip on the aging map when it started out, um, and they did seminal work in the field of caregiving. And
0: we'll talk to Dr. Easton about that coming up in a couple of moments. But meanwhile, you were a keynote speaker at a very important conference, the Statewide Aging in Texas Conference. You gave uh, a couple of workshops. You did the keynote uh, address. What was the conference like?
1: Well, the conference was an opportunity for professionals in the field of aging in Texas to come together, and it was my pleasure to join uh, the chief uh, executive officer of the National Council on the Aging, Jim Furman, and I sort of co-keynoted um, and talked about some of the workshops. But it was a fascinating um, you know, set of days with lots of information, uh, and I'm hoping that coming out of, of that conference, uh, one of the, the second day keynote was a panel from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, the Sam Barshop, in, the right. Barshop Institute right. on Aging. I
0: knew Sam Barshop. Um,
1: and, and he was my yeah. first boss. So, uh, you know, have who would have known back in the day that, you know, because they thought I it was very strange that when I went into <laughs> the field of aging, he and he did it too. Uh, and then for them to, the the family to donate money, Salmon and Bar Shop, to aging. And it has become one of the most important research centers on the study of um, aging and Alzheimer's disease in the country.
0: And right here at UTSA. Right
1: here locally. And I I was just blown away by... Some of the research that they talked about uh, in in the work in in Alzheimer's in Parkinson's in aging, they talked about our favorite naked mole rats. Oh, we and love naked mole rats. So the but probably the the most fun quote unquote factoid was that they they do a lot of work in the Alzheimer's field with uh, fruit flies because get this, seventy five percent of the genome, so the you know DNA of a fruit fly is the same as a human.
0: Seriously. So
1: I was thinking of the movie The Fly, and maybe that's not so far-fetched after all.
0: So the next time you say to yourself, why is he looking at me like that? That's
1: right. There there but for 25% of my genome go I. You know, I hadn't thought
0: about it, but if you look at our technical director, Roland Reese's head, Naked mole rat, like right? That's <laughs> no, pretty it's cool. It's not the
1: naked mole rat; it's the fruit fly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, but
0: it was seventy-five percent of the genome. Seventy-five
1: percent of the genome is the same as the How human could genome. That be? And but they have very short lifespan, so it, you don't have to wait very long for a fruit fly to get old. <laughs> And get Alzheimer's, which I thought was also they give opinion. Alzheimer's
0: to fruit flies, they, or they, they get it naturally.
1: Um, I believe they can, you know, like they do with other animals. I think they can give them Alzheimer's, but we'll have to have them on the show, yes, um, so we can ask that question. I, I'd like to do that. Yes, but it was it was really really interesting, and I got so excited just uh, thinking about the you know the work that they're doing, and then one of the physicians had a funny story. His his mother um, has Alzheimer's. And so he was from Italy and he'd gone back and he was kind of testing her out and showed her a picture of his father when they first got married. And he said, She didn't really, you know, who's this mom? Didn't really answer the question, but she smiled. And he, you know, he took oh. that smile. That's the answer. And then he showed her a picture of his father, you know, right before he passed away and said, And who's, you know, here, and here he is, you know, this is, this is dad. This is the man you married and you had children. And she looked at him and she goes, I would never marry an old man like that. So I thought that. He thought it was funny. And if you think Alzheimer's, you got to have a sense of humor if you have Alzheimer's. When
0: well, my mother first went into an assisted living uh, facility outside of Cleveland, Ohio, I remember asking her, so what's it like? Ronnie, it's filled with old people. <laughs> it's
1: filled with old people. That's right. So anyway, that was the Aging in Texas conference. And uh, a shout out to, to all the participants that were there. I appreciate Dogs that.
0: Dogs get dementia as well. If you talk to any veterinarian, they will tell you about patients who come to them and talk about problems their dogs are having. Yeah,
1: probably the paranoia. And, and plus they have sensory problems, too. You think about dogs getting deaf yeah. and blind. Right. And, yes, everything gets old, including fruit flies and pets.
0: <laughs> Except with fruit flies, it's fast.
1: <laughs> and they fly off into the sunset. And they're
0: gone. <laughs> well, on top of the aging conference, you came up. I love when you come up with lists. This is a, a list that every a- baby boomer uh, ought to think about. And their kids. 11 signs your parents may be ready for assisted living. And I need to see if I'm on that list. You want to see
1: if you're on the list? Well, let me start two things. Number one, this um, came from caring.com, and it was republished in Next Avenue, which is a great website. uh, It was by Paula Spencer Scott. But I would have to disagree with her on one thing. Uh, She's saying that this is a list that you're, you know, people might be ready for assisted living. And I would probably disagree with that. I think this is a list. It's kind of a checklist of do your parents need more help? They may need a change of living places. Uh, But certainly, I would not limit it to assisted living. So, assists in the home. Well, it could be assistance in the home. It could be adult daycare. It could be going to a senior center. It could be moving into senior housing. Um, Assisted living is so incredibly expensive. And Getting help there, unfortunately, is so difficult, even though they call it assisted living. So I would just say, think about it as just kind of warning signs that something needs to change. Yeah, the perception
0: is if you're in assisted living and you need help with medication, they provide that. But you have to pay for that. No,
1: you have to pay for every. You have to pay for housekeeping. You have to pay for the medication assistance. The only thing you don't pay for is the meals. So room and board is basically what wow. you're getting, and everything else is extra.
0: And a lot of the everything else is what you need.
1: Uh, exactly, exactly. So it's it's very expensive. In fact, in my keynote, um, I had actually calculated out my five relatives who live in residential care. Um, so I have a great aunt, two aunts, an uncle, and a mother, all in a, a residential care facility. It costs our family $32,000 a month for five people which averages out to $394,000 a year. Um, And even with our combined uh, resources, what family can afford $394,000 a year for five people?
0: That may explain the rash of robberies at convenience stores around Amarillo.
1: Well, it's it, they're all over the country. It's not even in Amarillo, so so that's why I probably am saying you it's know we don't want to put people in residential care because it's wow. going to be so expensive. But let's talk a little bit about the different categories on this list. You know, one of them is looking at the big picture. You know, sort of the big signs, and that's if you know, do they have all? Do they have dementia? a a chronic condition that's getting worse. Are they having trouble managing money, shopping, bathing, those kinds of things. But what I loved about next is they said, now give them a hug. Give your loved one a (laughs) hug and look up close. So now you're looking for weight gain or loss. Um, Do they kind of teeter? They seem a little more frail. And
0: personal hygiene. Uh,
1: Yeah, personal hygiene. Is there something going on? Have they stopped taking care of themselves? Are they crusty? You know, where their clothes used to be cleaner, they're getting crusty is there a change in their appearance so you know, then they, the third thing they said look at social signs are their friends still alive do they still go to church are they still doing their hobby are they basically spending all day in the house with nothing going on um, and is anybody checking on them on a regular basis besides you know you and you you came with this list in your hand uh, wow. so so that makes sense um, and then mail is a really great indicator so mail uh, is it stacked up like they call in snowdrifts all over the house?
0: You've seen um, my desk.
1: Well, I was going to say, I hope nobody's looking at right, my house. Exactly. Um, is it unopened? Are, are there a lot of bills, um, you know, things that look like uh, notices, notices? collecting um and are there a, is there an, an unusual amount of thank you notes from charities because if you see a lot of mail from charities that can mean that they're, they're giving, money, giving away. money and they don't remember perhaps right. that they've been giving to the same charities wow um so the next one you want to look at is driving signs they said take a ride with your loved one if they're still driving which um, some of us have done that and been a little bit scared by the result. You know, you can also look for dents in the car if there's been recent accidents i love my great aunt she always her, she's 95 and her rule is the youngest one in the car drives that has a driver's license <laughs> i like that yeah so that just takes That's the, a pretty good rule that is a pretty good rule especially if you'd ridden with her uh right before she said that um so kitchen signs this is another big one you know open that refrigerator door of the pantry is are there stale or, or spoiled food i know in one of my relatives house opening the bread box was you know a science experiment and lots of old bread Um, you know are there is the freezer full of tv dinners so that they're really not cooking anymore maybe we need some meals on wheels delivered do the appliances even work Ooh. No, have you tested out that microwave, the stove, the the refrigerator, you know, kind of gone around the kitchen? And then um, what my mother did before in her early Alzheimer's stage is one day I went home and I noticed all the potholders had signs of uh, fire damage. She had set every potholder in the house on fire at least once. Wow. Um, and so that's when you know it's it's uh, really, that's a really dangerous signal. If you, Time to if get rid of gas stoves. Yeah, so lock that up. So, you know, in wrapping up you know, are the pets being cared for? Um, is the house being cared for? You know, what's the maintenance look like? Is it look like it's becoming too much? Carol um, Zernial,
0: this is very depressing.
1: Well, n- n- this is a good checklist. Thank you. He's like, oh, I
2: don't <laughs> know, but I don't want anybody to come to my house with this checklist, is
1: what both of us are thinking. And the last question is, how are you doing? If you're going through this checklist and you've noticed that you're the person that's and helping take care of all these things you're checking on and you're starting to feel exhausted and stretched a little thin, it's probably time to call in some help.
0: That's a good point. Wow. And you found this on,
1: uh, I next, on next Avenue. Next Avenue. Next Avenue, next Avenue. Dot org. And it's called 11 signs your parent may be ready for wow. assisted living. And I say or other help.
0: And speaking of other help, we're going to talk about caregiving and the uh, Rosalind Carter Institute on caregiving and talk with uh, Dr. Isam about that in just a couple of moments. It's a pretty interesting topic, and uh, the work they do, you've sent some of your folks uh, for training at the Rosalind Carter Institute.
1: Yes, and I have been in workshops myself where they were providing training, so it's uh, going to be a pleasure to speak with them.
0: We will speak with Dr. Lisa Easam in just a moment. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernial. Where do you hear us? Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
2: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, Med Radio.
2: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
2: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Well, as we've been promising on Caregiver SOS on air, uh, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Lisa Isom, who is the Executive Director of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and uh, the reputation for the Institute is certainly widespread. In fact, Carol, some of your staff people have gone to training sessions there.
1: Absolutely, and the Rosalind Carter Institute really was one of the first uh, places that was focusing on caregiving, uh, has been a leader in the field for a long time, and it's just a pleasure to finally have someone on the show.
0: And Dr. Isum who is the executive director, uh, has a long and uh, really uh, sparkling history in not only caregiving, but in nursing as well, has a PhD and a RN in nursing, a graduate of uh, the uh, Georgia Southwestern State University. She was a professor of nursing, served as the chair at the Georgia State uh, Southwestern State School of Nursing. And prior to that, spent a long time working both in, uh, uh, as a registered nurse and in the field. And so you've had uh, only 30 plus years uh, devoted to nursing and now uh, at the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving. So uh, Dr. Isam thank you for coming on Caregiver SOS on air.
3: Well, thank you for the opportunity to share with uh, you about, and your listeners about what we do here.
0: Well, tell us a little bit uh, about how uh, the Carters got interested in the issue of caregiving and uh, forming the Carter Institute for Caregiving.
3: Well, former First Lady Rosalind Carter is truly a, a vision. She is a pioneer. She had a vision about what was happening in society. She has always been concerned about people's human development, mental health, Actually, the Institute on Caregiving grew out of her interest in mental health. When she was approached by the president of Georgia Southwestern State University about an opportunity to begin an institute here, she did not want to replicate what she already had at the Carter Center in Atlanta, which focuses on mental health. So she decided to focus on caregiving. And in 1987, the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving was started. And our mission is to establish local, state, national, and international partnerships that are committed to building quality, long-term, home and community-based services. We strongly believe in the need to provide greater recognition and support for both professional and family caregivers. Our focus includes supporting individuals and caregivers coping with chronic illness and disabilities across the lifespan.
0: So you all really are, are leaders in this field. Uh, Carol Zerniel has uh, worked for years in uh, in the field of aging and senior services as a gerontologist. And Carol, there weren't many back in 1987 who were focusing on caregiving, were there?
1: there I can think of probably two uh, places where anyone was looking at caregiving in the ni- late 1980s in California and then he, at the Rosalind Carter Institute.
0: And, and Dr. Eason, when you take a look at how many people today in 2016 are involved in caregiving? And as you look at that tsunami of baby boomers coming through uh, and the uh, expected uh, enormous increase in diagnoses of chronic illnesses, not the least of which, of course, is dementia and Alzheimer's, the need for caregiving is monumental.
3: Absolutely. The, the increase, and in when we look at the number of caregivers that are available now and what the projections are in the future our society needs to be extremely concerned because the, the, the number of caregivers per person that will need care is dwindling.
0: So that means uh, uh, for those like uh, uh, those in their 40s and 30s by the time they're in their 70s 80s and 90s who's going to be there to care for them?
3: That is a great question and so I think it's a critical Concern that we are focusing on supporting the caregivers as they go, having programs that will support them and let them stay in their valuable role as a caregiver in their journey.
1: So, what are the top issues that the Rosalind Carter Institute is looking at today in the field of caregiving?
3: Well, we work hard in four different areas. One is in advocacy. One is in research. One is in education, and one is in service. and we work in all four of those tenants. I think probably one of our strongest suits is our education and having programs for caregiver support, evidence based programs, programs that are proven in science that, that they work.
0: Programs like?
3: Well, let me tell you about a few. Um, in the area of, and Speckman, I'll start with one that's right in your area in San Antonio. We have a partnership with Blue Star Families. You may be very familiar with them. They are a volunteer organization serving the, the military caregivers um, of those who are returning from deployment. Our Operation Family Caregiver is, is an evidence-based program that provides coaching for the families and friends of returning service members and veterans to manage difficult transitions. The program is conducted via Skype or FaceTime. And it takes place over with several sessions over the course of four to six months. It's free. It's confidential. Uh, currently, uh, we have 12 sites of Operation Family Caregiver in nine different states. One is actually located in San Antonio, where you are. And if anyone there wants to avail themselves or become a participant in this program, <clears throat> excuse me, all they need to do is to email. These, this, this email address, let me share that with you. Reach out at Operation Family org, And I'll repeat that. Reach out at Operation Family org. No spaces.
1: Well, so, this program is, you, you were talking about military families. Is that because of the long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, is this a new area for the Institute in targeting uh, military families?
3: Yes. In past years, we, we were always, we've we always always dedicated our, our efforts toward caregiving across the lifespan, and that has not changed. But we know that there are two huge vulnerable populations that need care, and caregivers need support. One is in the area of dementia, and the other is the area of military caregivers. And so just in the recently, in 2012, we ran a pilot program of this Operation Family Caregiver, which is a problem-solving intervention.
0: What does that the pilot, mean?
3: The pilot proved that there was less burden, less depression, increased satisfaction of life, better health, and better uh, positive coping skills after they participated in the program. And we are actually having a summit, a uh, Rosalind Carter Institute Summit on Operation Family Caregiver and Military Supports in our country on July the 29th at the Carter Center in Atlanta. The registration is up on on our website, and we actually have two websites. We have the rosalindcarter.org website, which is an overview of all we do, and we also have a specific one for military caregivers, operationfamilycaregiver.org.
1: Well, that's fantastic. I mean, this is an area that is just so needed. And and you mentioned San Antonio. Of course, we have a a very large military presence uh, in San Antonio and there are other places around the country. But if caregivers feel invisible, then perhaps military caregivers may feel the most invisible of all.
3: That is correct, and we want to be there to support them. So anyone can reach out by emailing that address, and we will assign them to to a coach and work with them on their support.
0: Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with... Our co-host, Carol Zornio, we're talking with Lisa Isom at the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving. She's the executive director. And, uh, Dr. Isom, you mentioned of the four categories that you uh, specifically focus on. Uh, one is advocacy, and uh, we know that caregivers across this country could use a lot of friends in Congress and state legislators and beyond. Well, what are you all doing on advocacy?
3: In that area, there are two particular Legislative pieces that I think are important for your listeners to know about. One is your is the Raise Act. It's R A I S E. It's a federal legislation piece. It stands for Recognize, Assist, Include, Support, and Engage Family Caregivers. Uh, AARP is one of your largest proponents of this bill going forward. It has already passed the Senate. Waiting in the House now to see, but this particular legislative issue would create a national convening and a national um, committee on caregiving that would bring attention and supports probably nationwide. On a state level, for each state, there are there is um, an act called the CARE Act, the acronym C-A-R-E, which stands for Caregiver Advise, Record, Enable Act. And that particular act, and would, would ensure that caregivers who go to a hospital and leave the hospital once they leave, they would be documented on the record as the caregiver of record, and they would also ensure them that they got instructions on how to do wound care or how to do what, in, whatever they need to take care of their loved one once they get home. This, then it would become law with this. I think 24 states to date have adopted the Care Act.
1: So on the CARE Act, because I've been following, you know, the progress uh, the states are making on this, you know, what I've been reading and hearing is that many healthcare care professionals say, oh, this is unnecessary because we already talked to the caregivers. Uh, would you agree with that assessment that caregivers are well armed uh, upon leaving a hospital
0: And we'll get that from you in just a minute. Hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zirniel as we talk with Dr. Lisa Esam, Executive Director of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving. And that's a pretty good question because it really drives at the heart of the kind of support and recognition and attention caregivers get and the kind of involvement they have in the medical care and consultation involving those for whom they were providing care. This is Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is
1: it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver.
0: And how can this program help?
1: Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors. The latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we
0: learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it.
1: Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus,
0: there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m., The Answer. Well, we are so pleased you are riding along with us on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, our co-host, and we're talking with Dr. Lisa Isom at the Roseland Carter Institute for Caregiving, and we're talking about uh, the CARE Act, and uh, you had a good question, Carol Zerniel. Why don't we repeat it for those who may just be joining us?
1: Well, um, the, the CARE Act... Recently, has been in the news, uh, and there's been what seems to be some pushback from the healthcare community in general, saying this is an unnecessary legislation because we already communicate with caregivers. You don't need to put it into law, uh, and they have the information they need in the discharge papers that we provide at hospitals. So, you know, would would you agree with that um, perspective?
3: Well, Carol, Mrs. Carter has always said that if you want to know firsthand from somebody, you need to ask those who are living that journey. So when we ask caregivers, are you getting what you need, Um, what we're hearing from them is, no, we're not. We do get discharge papers that tell us that we need to follow up with our health care provider in so many weeks and probably an appointment. But as far as an opportunity to practice how to change the dressing Um, or give a, a, a tube feeding or whatever they're needing to do that they're being asked to do once they're discharged from the hospital. They're not getting instructions and an opportunity to practice so that they feel skilled enough when they go home and enabled and empowered to do it on their own.
1: Well, and you mentioned um, AARP and and the support for legislation that they have, and and they came out with a report that talked about medical nursing tasks that caregivers are being asked to perform, and only about 40% of caregivers get any training at all. Uh, for medication management, for wound care, for uh, dietary needs, uh, and that can in- include uh, you know sp- very special diets, maybe therapeutic diets that are mashed. Uh, so this is a huge gap.
0: Now, I'm smiling, and Dr. Isom, you will appreciate this because over a year ago now, Carol and uh, her department at the WellMed Medical uh, Management and WellMed Charitable Foundation applied for a grant, and they were dinged by uh, CMS, Center for Medicare Services, uh for claiming that caregivers provide some quasi-medical care, you remember that?
1: No, no, it's absolutely true. Turn down. They, they, w- they said no. That's what nurses do, uh, uh, and they, I don't think that they realize how much the caregivers do on the way home. So, it, you know, this is important legislation, and I think many of us who do work with ca- directly with caregivers, as we do in our SOS Resource Centers, uh, would agree that caregivers often feel ill-equipped and untrained when they're asked to do specific tasks. You know, I I would be the first one to raise my hand as being, uh, you know, anything that has to do with bodily fluids would be difficult for me, even though my mother was a nurse.
3: And, you know, today with uh, managed care, we send them home from a hospital environment quicker and sicker. And so we ask our caregivers to do a lot. And uh, we need to give them those programs of support. We need to give them those the education before they leave the hospital, and then follow up with them to make sure that they do understand and if they have questions.
1: Well, one of the you mentioned two audiences. You mentioned that you're working with professional caregivers and with family caregivers. So, what do you, you know? What are the issues? What's the difference between a professional caregiver and a family caregiver?
3: Well, a professional caregiver is one who goes, um, I guess, into the home perhaps and gives care, or one who works in a, a a hospital environment perhaps, a physician's office, a health, uh, some other health care provider office that would deliver that care. Um, we, we understand, too, that they will undergo burnout in their role, that their work environment is hard. And we actually have a program called Caring for You, Caring for Me. It's a signature program. It's the only one of its kind. It's one of our programs, and its, its third edition is due out later this month. Um, and what it does is it brings together professional caregivers and family caregivers, and increases the dialogue between them. Um, and it's it's it, it's over done as a support group type of uh, offering for five weeks, and they meet for like two hours each each week. And it's it's been very beneficial for professional caregivers to see or to view caregiving through the lens of a caregiver, and vice versa. So it's it's been a very Uh, productive program. But um, that's a good program. But the other programs I didn't get to speak about, but I'd like to tell you about, are like our RCR Reach program, which is Resources Enhancing Alzheimer's Caregiver Health. Uh, That one in particular, I think, is important for health care providers, professional caregivers, because if they know these programs are available, your health care provider, your professional health care provider, needs to to be a seamless system of referral for anyone that walks in their office or comes into their area that they can refer into the community for resources. So I think being knowledgeable about this is one way we connect with those professional caregivers. Um, and REACH is available. Actually, we have a, the AAA in Sherman, Texas is delivering REACH. And sometimes REACH um, is it's very intensive. The coach meets with them by Skype or it meets with them face-to-face in the home over six months to work on anything that the caregiver says is a troubling dementia behavior. We have had outstanding success with that program.
0: Now, for those who don't know, AAA is not the American Automobile Association. (laughs) It's the area agency on aging.
3: Thank you. Thank you, you Ron. And uh, we also have a program called Care Consultation. Uh, We do this in conjunction with the Benjamin Rose Institute, and it's a telephonic uh, empowerment program where people work with them for over a year and they sign up and they become a part of this program and they can call in and a coach works with them, a consultant works with them to navigate the healthcare system. So I think we have a lot to to offer here at at RCI, and I would like to tell your readership that they can always contact us at www.rosalynn, and that's R-O-S-A-L-Y-N-N, caregiver.org
0: Now she's Dr. Lisa Isom, who is executive director of the Rosen Carter Institute for Caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernial on Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. the answer and uh, of the programs that uh, she's been describing are there some that parallel what we're doing at the Wellman Charitable Foundation?
1: Well, I I you know, we Actually, also provide the care consultation program out of the Benjamin Rose Institute. So I'm very familiar with that, mm-hmm. and, and that's the great thing about having multiple organizations focusing on caregiving. We learn from each other. We learn about best practices. Um, and you mentioned evidence that that's another evidence based program. Why is evidence based is important?
3: Because our caregivers, whether they're military, they're caring for someone with with dementia or a disability or a child that has a disability, they deserve the best. They deserve the best. And so the best is, is pro, programs that are proven in science to work. In other words, they were tested in a clinical trial, and many of these that I've talked about, we assisted and did the translational research to bring them into the community so that we could, uh, with fidelity back to their original intervention, to carry it out in the same way, use the same types of metrics And achieve the same positive outcomes of decreased burden, decreased depression, better, you know, there are different, more self-efficacy. They feel more empowered, more motivated to stay in their valuable caregiving role. Across all of our programs, we're seeing this.
1: Right. So what, you, so what you're saying is that you know the programs are going to work because they've been tested in a scientific environment, they were proven successful, and you brought them into the community and had the same success. So we don't have to guess what's going to happen to a caregiver who goes through one of your evidence-based programs. We know they're going to get positive results.
3: Absolutely, Carol. That is that You summed it up very nicely.
0: Let me ask you, uh, just before we run out of time here, and we've still got about four or five minutes, uh, how are uh, uh, Rosen Carter and Jimmy Carter doing? I'm sure you have some contact, uh, at least with her. I
3: do. I talk with her quite often. I spoke with her just earlier today. Uh, she's very active. She is the president of our board of directors at, at the Institute. She stays extremely engaged with us. Um, And I think they're doing very well. Uh, President Carter's cancer scare is now gone, and um, they are very busy still advocating and giving of themselves for others.
1: And did I just see something about being married 70 years?
3: Absolutely. Isn't that wonderful? They are such a model for everyone.
0: Well, they are, and it it is so refreshing to see those uh, who have been president and first lady continue to give back Uh, To people in their community and and in this country and in the case of uh, Jimmy Carter internationally, it is so refreshing uh, to see that he hasn't joined 400 boards of directors to rake in the cash.
3: They have dedicated their lives to service and they have certainly carried it out.
1: Well, it was so funny. Um, Last week we had, or two weeks ago, we had the Aging in Texas conference. And uh, I was telling the story about how when President Carter was running for election, um, I was on a side street in San Antonio, the only person on the street. So I know it was me. uh, And President Carter rolled down his window and waved at me. (laughs) And I just couldn't believe my good luck or that he was waving at me.
3: Do you know if you if you ever see him on an airplane, he will go and shake everyone's hand before he sits down.
0: I was on a plane that he was on a few years ago, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, and he wasn't looking for any votes because he'd already been president. Right. That was pretty cool. They were both pretty cool. And they're that way, I assume, when you meet them on the streets of their hometown. Absolutely. So tell me in in the last few minutes we have. Uh, you've been involved uh, directly and indirectly in, in nursing and health care and aging for quite a while. Uh, how have things changed? You mentioned uh, hospitals today are uh, encouraged to discharge people a lot sooner uh, than they might have uh, in the past, which is not necessarily a bad thing. The worst place to be if you're sick is a hospital. So going home is okay. What has changed uh, for the better, and what do you think has changed for the worse?
3: I have to give that some thought, but there are, there are a lot of things. We've made some huge leaps in sciences that have made things better and life better. We live longer. Um, just because we live longer does not always mean we live better quality lives. though. And I think we need to work on that aspect and have those support programs for those families so that they can age in place and stay home. Um, I'm not saying that institutionalization is, is, is the wrong answer. Sometimes it is the right answer. Um, but many times, um, they would, people could stay in their own homes, aging in place, with their families if they had the right supports in the community in place for them. So I think we've made some great strides in increasing the, the availability of community resources available for families, and I think that's, that's a huge improvement. We still have some more room to grow there as a nation, though.
1: Right. And I think George has actually done a better job than some other states uh, and increasing the um, the accessibility of home and community based services.
3: Oh, absolutely! Georgia is a role model for other states. Why? Because they they're very proactive and forward thinking. Uh, we work closely closely with the Department of Aging here in the state of Georgia. Um, In fact, we're rolling out BRI care consultation across the entire state right
1: now. Right. I would say that the influence of the Rosalind Carter Institute on aging in Georgia is one of the main reasons they've done so well.
3: Well, thank you.
0: (laughs) And and from your standpoint, uh, it's got to be pretty cool to to be able to interact with uh, the First Lady and uh, get some things done on behalf of uh, uh, caregivers across this country.
3: Well, you know what? If you if you're dedicated to serving others, um, it's it's a wonderful thing to be in the place to follow Mrs. Carter because she is certainly a role model for all of us.
0: Give us that website one more time before we have to say goodbye to you.
3: Okay, it's www.rosalynn which is r o s a l y n n carter. org. And I'd like to mention the other the email address for those military caregivers. Sure, it's if you would email, reach out at operationfamilycaregiver.org. And in your email, if they'll just list their address, we'll make sure you get a coach that's close in location to you as possible.
0: Well, that's perfect. And thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it.
3: Well, thank you, Ron and Carol, for the opportunity. It's been a take pleasant care. experience. Bye-bye.
0: Dr. Lisa Eason at the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. Up next, take 10. With Dr. Jamie Heisman, right here, exclusively here, on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
2: Has it really been that long that Dr. we've been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, Med Radio.
2: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
2: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
2: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren, and on and on. So, why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach.
0: So, listen to Well Med Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 AM, The Answer. Oh, I love that little percussion sound. That's nice. You're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, we are joined each week by Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known therapist, deals with issues involving caregivers and addictions, and so we thought we'd play right into one of strengths today as we talk about what are addictions all about? Why are people unfortunately willing or not willing to destroy their lives because of an addiction? And among seniors, Carol, we see this all the
1: time. Drugs
0: and alcohol.
1: I know Jamie has educated us about the growing problem of addictions and unfortunately... Uh, the attitude many times is these are older people. Let them do what they want. We're not going to intervene. It's okay if they drink themselves to death. It's okay if they take drugs. They're old. What else would they be doing is kind of the attitude. Let grandpa have fun. Yeah, let him have his fun if that's what he wants to do. So, you know, is that the attitude we should be having, Jamie?
4: Well, Carol, you know, you work with WellMed, so we're living longer and longer. So maybe that was the attitude 100 years ago. When we were living to possibly 50 and 60 years old. But the last time I looked, life really is beginning for many people at 60. Um, if you look at AARP, their largest entrepreneurial sector right now, they're starting businesses, are boomers and seniors. So let me return the favor to you and ask you, you know, at that age, is life really over?
1: Well, I would I would have to beg to say, no, I don't think it is. But why is it that we are seeing such an increase um, in drug addictions, in alcohol addiction among older people? Because that's not the group that most people think about.
4: Well, I think alcohol addiction has always been there. I think, you know, in terms of reporting it, it's always been very difficult because family caregivers are the ones who usually report it. In fact, family caregivers, if you really think about it, are probably genetically predisposed as well to the same alcoholism that their mom, father, or whoever the family member actually is, because it's a genetically predisposed condition. So I think we're becoming more and more aware that this issue is out there, and we're actually educating, if you will, family caregivers that there's help and treatment there. But to the point of why now, I think we're really looking at substance abuse in senior citizens in a different way because there's such a huge geometric trend to addictions around opiates, benzodiazepines, um, basically so, pain remedies. So and I should say, yeah, so
1: a benzodiazepine, a what? Why, what would I, that look like? What would I know it
4: the name by? Well, it's an anti-anxiety, a benzodiazepine. I've seen seniors on it for, you know, 30, 40 years in, in the olden days when... Ron and I were around. Of course, they called it Milltown. We hear it now called, you know, Xanax or Valium. Those have been prescribed for years upon years by doctors, usually primary care doctors that just wanted people to calm down. But they forgot that that's an addictive substance. As to pain, obviously, when we're seeing so many patients, not in our environment, but in fee for service environment you can bet that doctors really who see 30 or 40 patients can't spend more than a certain amount of time talking somebody out of the prescription, so they usually give in and give the prescription for pain medication.
0: There was a piece in the New York Times recently about prescribing drugs to seniors that really are not recommended, Valium being one, Uh, and the best time of day to ask your doctor for that prescription is late in the day. They're too tired to fight with you.
1: Thank you for empowering us, Ron.
4: (laughs) You know, it makes so much sense, though, if you really think about it. I have an old saying, which everybody, I'm sure, will bear it out. It takes five minutes to tell somebody yes, and it takes 40 minutes to tell somebody no.
0: Exactly. So if you
4: have 30 patients and a bunch waiting in the waiting room, what are you going to say? And unfortunately, you see doctors who aren't really monitored in a fee-for-service environment Taking the path of least resistance.
1: So what? What's the answer? Um, if I'm that older person and I've been taking, you know, Valium for years, anti-anxiety or painkillers, what should I be doing instead? Let's say it's painkillers. I am in pain. I have horrible arthritis. What's What's the answer if I can't take my painkillers?
4: Well, actually, you can. I, I pain is legitimate, and the last thing I want to be is a zealot on top of a mountain telling people that they can't treat their pain. Pain is certainly legitimate and there's legitimate, you know, pain medication for that. What happens often is that a primary care doctor or any doctor, neurologist, a specialist who prescribes pain remedies doesn't even know the behavioral health history of the person in front of them. You know, psychiatry usually with that world and, and you're not seeing many people refer, or many physicians, if you will, refer out to a psychiatrist. So if you don't know the behavioral health history and you're using an addictive substance, chances are the person's gonna become addicted. So there are several things you need to do. You need to hopefully get caregivers involved and educate them as to what to watch in their loved one, and to make sure they're watching them, and if they do, make sure they're part of the treatment team and can come back and and, and discuss it. Also, you wanna make sure you give um, patients immediate visits back. I mean, I've often seen patients who took opiates for a length of time not necessarily come back and find out they're addicted, and then not come back to their doctor because they don't believe their doctor will write them prescriptions. So there are a whole group of things you can do, but support and connecting a senior is the most important thing. But dealing
0: with the pain, I'm sorry, the pain is, as Carol said, a a very real issue, and I I know there are many who specialize in pain medicine who will tell you their concern very often is that doctors under-prescribe.
4: And that may well be true also as a reaction, Ron. I'm not saying that many now, you know, in America we tend to overreact to certain things and we, we then come back and the, the, the pendulum gets to the, if we hope, into the middle. Um, but we're seeing that. But I would think that in tandem with the proper pain medication that a good pain specialist, remember what I'm saying pain specialist because they are truly trained in that, I said. In addition to that, I think there are complementary medicine interventions. You know, there's, there's meditation, there's mindfulness, there's a lot of biofeedback, uh, there's support groups. There's so many things I think that can be added uh, in tandem with the pain medication. Yeah, I good oversight, good case management. Uh, and good, you know, uh, quality utilization really helps in this process.
1: So I can remember a friend of mine whose father um, had terrible diabetes and it had gotten spiraled out of control. And and he had gone to big, strong, walking, hiking guy to in a wheelchair in tremendous amount of pain, lots of pain. Um, and he was just fighting, you know, the pain pills and being in the wheelchair and being depressed, all these bad things. And he did... Um, meet someone, a a physician, who recommended some pain management, and it really was exercises in controlling the pain through visualization, visualizing the pain, getting smaller, 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 breathing through it like you would in Lama's class. Um, And all of those techniques actually worked. He was able not only to get off the pain medication, he was able to reduce his pain enough that he could did exercise and strengthened himself, got back out of the wheelchair, and he was back Mr. Hiking Man again after a period of time. But it took that intervention um, of someone teaching him how to manage that pain and get through that really tough time.
4: You know, Carol, there's a whole show we could dedicate to this, and then probably we don't have the time, but what you just articulated was a Buddhist philosophy. They call it the Two Arrows. The first arrow is pain, the real pain, the pain that we feel—shoulders, emotional, um, back, you know, whatever it is that we're feeling. The second arrow, according to the Buddhist, is the pain of suffering. It's the story we tell ourselves about the pain, creating this whole world around this pain. You know, if you moved into the pain, like Carl Jung would say, embrace the shadow, and were able to really deal with it one-on-one, if you will, mano a mano, you'd find an entirely different sort of process. And Let's not forget the health consequences associated with all this medication is, is huge. It's balance, it's cognitive issues, it's depression. So to your point and to the Buddhist point, avoid the second arrow.
1: So if what would I look for? How would I know that the person I'm caring for has an addiction?
4: Well, you know, you can watch them. Obviously, if, it's a, if you are a family caregiver or a caregiver at all, and you know the pattern of behavior they were before, it's basically not as difficult to see that they're in steady decline. But certainly you can see um, behavior that's hiding medication, if you will. You know, one of the big issues is doctor shopping. So if you start seeing a loved one, really, instead of going back to their own primary care or their own neurologist or whoever's treating the pain, but want to seek out another physician or an ER or another doorway, your, your, your alarms should go off at that particular point in time. If you do see balance and gait issues, if you're noticing different cognitive issues happening, uh, if you're starting to see sleep problems or depression um, or any adverse reaction, I think you really, you know, ha- should have a, a red flag go up in your mind. And what do you do Well, in 20 that's seconds? That's an interesting thing, you know, because it's a long-involved process of what we call intervention. But I think you first accept it. You know, you don't panic. You understand treatment for addictions are, are out there, and, and they they tend to really work. But I also would get the entire family involved. Got to stop you right there. You're right. I we'll, do another,
0: sure. we'll do another Take 10 on this because we are flat out of time. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zernial, I'm Ron Aaron. We thank you for listening to us on Take 10, Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m. The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the Wellmed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program at wellmed.net and join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel for another edition of
4: Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m. The answer.